In today's 14th episode of the Science Communication Journal Club podcast, we talk with Dr. Lisa Lundgren about the scientific Twitter, who's sharing messages, what messages are being shared, and what stands out in the noise. But first things first, a bit about us. Hello and welcome to the Psychom JC podcast, your one-stop shop for effective and impactful science communication approaches. Psychom JC is sponsored by Captive Touch, a company offering consulting and training for strategic science communication. At Psychom JC, we aim to help scientists integrate findings from the latest evidence-based research in social sciences and education into their outreach efforts. We curate, summarize and discuss research studies and their applications to real communication contexts in a way that scientists can easily implement. But let me give first the chance to Lisa to introduce herself and to tell us a little bit about what she really does. Hi, thanks for having me on the podcast today. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm a postdoctoral researcher and I work in the NEAG School of Education at the University of Connecticut. Um, generally, I focus on designing, creating and researching social learning in various environments like museums or schools and on the Internet. Um, a lot of my current research involves social media, especially questions about who's involved in conversations about science on social media. We had a Twitter chat and we spoke about an article actually published in PLOS One, where you, Lisa, are one of the co-authors. And the article was is entitled Scientific Twitter, the flow of paleontological communication across a topic network. Um, how about you take us a little bit through that research paper? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Thanks. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so the article we wrote is all about how people were communicating about paleontology on Twitter. And so paleontology is the study of Earth's ancient life. A lot of people, when they think about paleontology, they think about dinosaurs. Um, but it's more than just dinosaurs. Uh, it spans, you know, the Earth's billion-year-long history. Um, so it's things like dinosaurs, megalodon, giant sloths, all sorts of creatures. Um, and paleontology is based on real-world observations dig up fossils in the field, you can go see fossils in museums, etc. But um, we were noticing that a lot of conversations about paleontology were happening on social media platforms like Twitter. So we wanted to know who was involved in these paleontology specific Twitter conversations, what those conversations were, and how people were connected on the uh, platform of Twitter. So um, the data collection took point took place in five steps. So we first wanted a way to aggregate paleontology specific messages. So we had a system for <clears throat> determining for determining hashtags that people who were interested in paleontology were using. And the four hashtags that we ended up choosing for our um, data collection were hashtag paleontology, hashtag fossil Friday, hashtag fossils, and hashtag paleoart. Um, then we needed a way to collect tweets from these specific hashtags. So we used what are called network extraction programs. One is called NodeXL and the other one is called Netlytic. And they extract data from Twitter so that we can analyze tweets, the people who are involved and how people are connected. The third step of it was we wanted to know who exactly was involved in these conversations. So we created a way to categorize people's Twitter biographies because people's Twitter biographies are their way, people's ways of um, indicating 
who they are to other people in the network. So this um, categorization method was three-tiered and essentially classified people into different um, levels. You had a high-level uh, piece called structure, you had a mid-tier level called categories, and you had a fine-grained tier called types. All right, and then after that, we did a social network analysis of the tweets, retweets, and mentions in the network. And then lastly, we analyzed the content of the tweets using a framework that divided messages into five categories. Wow. Uh, and Lisa, hi, this is Maria. Could you talk a little bit about why you focused on Twitter and not, let's say, Instagram or maybe something else I'm not aware of? And this might seem like a silly question for us who are in both and kind of familiar with them and why there might be good, bad, pros and cons. But a lot of my colleagues, uh, especially those still in grad school, you know, they're busy with their dissertations, but they're trying to get out there. They're really not sure where to start and what some of the benefits are and what to watch out for. So can you just explain why Twitter, I guess? Yes, that's a really good question. So Twitter is one of the easiest um, platforms for aggregating data. So Twitter's um, API, which is the application programming interface that uh, network extraction programs like NodeXL and Netlytic, uh, they can very easily pull from Twitter. Um, Facebook, the data that you need to collect in order to do some sort of social media analytics or social media uh, messaging is um, pretty, it's a, it's a very multi-step pro process. And then mm -hmm. Instagrams is even harder to collect data from. There's no way to aggregate the information in an effective way. Um, whereas with Twitter, it's pretty easy to um, effectively gather up the data and analyze it. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, this is Sherry, Lisa. Um, hi, Sherry. Hi. Um, fantastic paper, by the way. Thanks. Uh, you're welcome. And I'm really curious about, about learning more about how does social network analysis work? How is it done? What factors are considered? How do you judge when someone has more influence? And from reading your paper, I kind of... Um, realize that there's different ways, different kinds of influence and different ways of defining it. And then we had a particular poster during our chat, which talked about all of these pro, uh, points just for the benefit of our, us, because we're not social scientists. So if you could go a little bit more on these terms and define them and a little bit maybe slowly for those of us who are. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank um, you. Of course. Yeah. So um, I really appreciated during the Twitter chat that there were those great graphics that you guys had created that helped to explain social network analysis because um, it is a, a method that I don't think a lot of people are using as much. It's it's getting a lot more traction lately, but essentially it's a method for determining how people within a system are connected to each other. So. For our paper, we use Twitter, specifically those people on Twitter who tweeted or retweeted messages with our four specific hashtags. Um, but once you pull in all that data using those programs that I had mentioned before, um, you can use, we use NodeXL to show who's involved. So for example, if someone creates a tweet about paleontology and uses the hashtag Fossil Friday, they had a chance of being in the data set. 
And if other people responded to that tweet, they were more than likely also in the data set. Um, social network analysis uses complex algorithms to determine um, how people are part of the network in something called centrality. And there's three types of centrality. There's eigenvector, betweenness, and closeness centrality. Yeah, I struggle uh, pronouncing that. Is that eigenvector? Eigenvector. Uh, eigenvector. Eigen. Some people say it. So I, I haven't quite figured out which one is the best way. Okay. <laughs> there's probably someone who does know who might, you know, tweet at us and be like, it's this. So go ahead. That's great. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but the eigenvector centrality is the influence of the person. So if a lot of people are retweeting or responding to that person or entity, they have a lot of influence and thus they have a high eigenvector centrality. Um, betweenness centrality measures control of information. Essentially, if you're bridging gaps between people, your betweenness centrality is high. So for example, say Sherry tweets something and she's asking a question. And then I respond to her tweet tagging um, Navina. That would, I would be acting as a bridge. Um, I wouldn't necessarily be the person who is um, like giving information. I'm trying to make connections between people. Hmm. Um, and then there's closeness centrality, which measures an individual's connectedness in the network. Um can I ask another uh, question to actually backtrack a little bit? How did you actually end up choosing those specific four hashtags? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, so we first, this was a, a really fun piece that um, happened between me and my two co-authors. Um, we were interested in paleontology and we were working on a project that was funded by the National Science Foundation called the Fossil Project. And it was all about connecting different kinds of paleontologists in the United States. So people who have degrees, people who don't have sci like scientific degrees, but just like to go collect fossils, um, classroom teachers who like to use paleontology in their classrooms. We were trying to connect all those people. And one of the ways that we were trying to connect with people was using social media. So we had created some posts using the hashtag paleontology because we had just been you know, seeing that as in other people's posts. And then that's what get a, got us thinking like, wait, what are the hashtags associated with paleontology? Mm -hmm. And we didn't just want to, you know, look at, say, a museum that has a huge amount of um, followers. We didn't just want to, like, look through all of their tweets and say, okay, well, we'll just follow what they're doing. We'll just follow the hashtags they're using. So um, there's a system or a program called Hashtagifyme that takes all different hashtags from across Twitter and um, ranks them by popularity. And it does like percentage of popularity, essentially. Um, so we had a bunch of hashtags that we had come up with ahead of time. And we're like, well, maybe hashtag fossil is associated with uh -huh. Twitter or with uh, paleontology. Maybe yeah. there's a couple of conferences that are, um, people are using to talk about paleontology on Twitter. Um, and then we ran it through that hashtag if I me database and saw how popular those um, hashtags were because we wanted to say like, 
how is the general network talking about paleontology using this, these hashtags? We didn't necessarily want to just get into, you know, how one specific subsection of Twitter is using mm. hashtags. So what did you find in your analysis, Lisa? Let me back up. One of the things that we wanted to do, as I had mentioned before, was talking about who was in the network. And we were um, categorizing people using a three-tiered classification system, which we called the paleontological identity taxonomy, which we shortened <laughs> to <laughs> which we shortened to the pit, which is very fun because oftentimes in paleontology you end up digging in pits. So it was just perfect <laughs> all the way around. Um, but with this taxonomy, the, the middle tier of the taxonomy broke people into four different categories. So we had people who were categorized as um, commercial, which those are people who bought or sold fossils or uh, fossil-related items on Twitter. Um, we had people who were scientists who would put in their Twitter biographies, I'm a paleontologist at the um, Denver Museum of Natural History or I teach uh, paleontology at the University of Florida. Um, and then we had people who were uh, categorized as education and outreach. So those are people who said that they were K-12 educators, they were museum educators. Um, in some way, shape, or form, they educated people. And then the last category was public, and those people had an interest in paleontology, and they put... they wrote about it in their biography, but we couldn't tell anything else about them. So we use that middle tier of the classification system to um, figure out who, who were the people in the network. Um, and what we found was that there were 61% of the network were people who were uh, classified as members of the public. We had 24% of the network, uh, people who are classified as scientists, and then 12% were education and outreach, and, and only 1% were commercial. Um, but what we found was that thinking through those centrality measures, um, we found that scientists and education and outreach were the most highly connected, meaning they had a lot of influence on the network, which translates to they had high eigenvector centralities. Um, we found that the public, the scientists, and education outreach entities had equal between the centralities, um, meaning that everyone bridged gaps between each other. There wasn't necessarily, like, scientists weren't reaching out to, to, to bridge gaps only. Like, everyone was bridging gaps. Um, but then the last piece of those centralities is the closeness centrality. And we found that scientists had the highest closeness centrality, meaning that they were the most individually connected. So this is Sherry here. Let's, yeah. let's tear this apart a little bit and see what okay. we can learn from it. So if scientists were the most individually connected, yes, but didn't have the highest between a certain centrality, mm -hmm. does that mean that they kind of, prefer to share information mostly with other scientists because if they're the ones that uh, are the most individually connected, mm -hmm. you'd think that if they were equally spreading information among everyone, they would have the highest between the 
centrality. centrality. Yeah. So uh, what are the implications of these differences of values for scientists? That's a really good question. Um, so in terms of the betweenness centrality question, it, it means that they scientists were affected, effective at individually disseminating messages across the social world of, mm-hmm. of Twitter paleontology. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that they were connected to the network as a whole. Um, if there's one thing I could go back and change about this paper is the way that um, plus one displayed our second figure, which is the network analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you print it out, it is tiny. <laughs> it's yeah. like, oh my gosh, what is this? A, a graph for ants. Um, <laughs> but essentially what it shows is that there's all these different scientists who are within the network, but they're not connecting to other people within the network. Wow. They're just kind of in their, um, not their bubbles, but in some degree, they're um, doing their own thing and and not necessarily connecting totally. Yeah, so that that's a that's a good lesson for the paleontology and the largest scientific community. In that, yes, I mean, and this is what communication professionals have been saying to scientists all the time: don't just share information, make personal connections. Yeah. Um, that to me talks about that that's a really good transition into talking about um the the way that message the way that we categorize messages within the network mm-hmm. um, yeah. because we had a a way for categorizing the messages so we wanted to know okay so now we know who is talking what the heck are they talking about like what what are these messages that they were sharing or communicating about. Um, So we had, it was a way to say, okay, these are the different types of of messages that are within this social world. And um, we found that there were information posts, um, there were news posts, there were um, opportunity posts, there were research posts and off-topic posts. And so all of those had specific definitions um, so messages that we coded as information contained general resources for paleontology, disseminated posts of recent activity, links to blogs, or they contain personal connections to paleontology. Um, news posts were media outlet stories about paleontology that described the science for a layout uh, audience. So that's essentially if someone had shared a science daily post. Or so um, after news posts, we had what was called opportunity posts, which were messages that indicated something within the field of paleontology that community members could participate in. So that could be like an opportunity to volunteer at a museum or um, a citizen science opportunity about paleontology or um, uh, someone could go on a dinosaur dig, that sort of thing. Those were shared on um, Twitter. Um, And then we had research posts, which were illustrated aspects of scientific research, which included like links to journal articles or fieldwork photos with scale bars. Um, And then, of course, we had off topic posts. And these were people who would just like jump on to the hashtag and it wouldn't have anything to do with paleontology. Like, for instance, um, one of those off topic posts was someone who 
was talking about a play that took place in the like Jurassic Coast part of England and they hashtagged it paleontology. <laughs> sure. Yes. <laughs> wow. Yes. And Lisa, uh, so this is Maria. Here's my question. Can you please comment on why some of the other post types were not effective at reaching folks across groups? So for example, when I looked at figure four in the paper, I saw that the news posts were kind of terrible. And to me, they looked like they were worse than off-topic posts. Did I interpret that correctly? Because that was really surprising to me. And um, the second half of the question is, when you talk about news posts, mm -hmm. is this just sharing the link or do people add a little summary, a little touch of their own opinion, which is something I try to do because I think it makes those more engaging, but I'm not oh sure. Oh boy, you got to the heart of um, one of our biggest <laughs> sources of um, not contention, but we had a lot of conversations about this when we were um, collectively coding. Um, so I'll answer your fir the first part of your question about the news posts in general. Um, it was very surprising to us, too, to see that um, news posts were not very uh, engaged with. Um, because so oftentimes when we're thinking about science communication, scientists or if we're talking to students who are interested in getting into science communication, they're told to write leads. They're told to write headlines when they want to turn their science into something that can be enjoyed by anyone. Um, but in... The network of social, or excuse me, the network of paleontology, we interpreted that news posts were talking to yourself since there was little engagement with those types of messages. Um, and I think it goes back to the practical advice of making science personal. You might be able to like write this clever news headline, but unless it relates to what you're interested in, it might not be engaged with. Um, and that's really not to say that you should make all posts like specific to you, but it's something to be aware of. Um, and then speaking to your point about how do you like differentiate or if you if you share a news post and you put your own spin on it, um, we talked about this so often in our coding meetings. Because um, we would meet once a week to code all the data because there was like, 9,000 messages, and we didn't use any <laughs> machine learning um, to code it. So this is what was done by me, my co-author, Rich, and we had some undergraduate interns who helped us. Incredible. They, that was part of their, um, they had a research experience as undergrads, and their research experience was to help us code these Twitter messages, which was fun. I love those meetings. That was great. Um, but we would get into debates of if someone's sharing a news post and they said their personal connection to that news post, is that a news post or is that an information post? You know, because if you're sharing a personal connection, that makes it information, but you, you shared the link to a news story. So what we would take is we would take the person's message, the thing that the person had said, so some people would have the news post and they would just share the headline again as part as their Twitter message. Those were news posts. However, if someone had a link to the news story and said, this is meaningful to me because I visited that fossil site as a kid, that's an information post. Now, there is a kind of a wrinkle in... Um 
in judging whether a tweet has been engaged with or not. Mm -hmm. And it may have to do with the way you guys have defined engagement in your paper. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at the analytics on Twitter, there are various different ways people engage with a tweet. And we know from research uh, that one of the uh, highest rated reason for people to use social media and specifically Twitter is to get the news. Mm -hmm. um, and very often they uh, may interact with those posts by clicking through the link or expanding to see more and these are, in my view, are also engagement. Absolutely. So uh, maybe the reason behind this surprising finding among news is because of the engagement metrics that you were using. That's a really good point. Um, and especially because one of our other studies that's in uh, review right now has to do with engagement rates and like going into those Twitter analytics that you were just talking about mm -hmm. and specifically making sure that we're accounting for link clicks and expands mm -hmm. um, and seeing what kinds of posts uh, using the same framework, yeah. uh, what kinds of posts we're engaged with. And I'm not going to share the findings from, from that study yet. I mean, if that gets published, you can have me on again. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, happy to. But with the current study, that is definitely a limitation. And I don't think that we necessarily discuss that in our in a limitation section because mm -hmm. um, the Node XL and Netlytic from which we pulled the tweets doesn't account for engagement rate in that way. Mm -hmm. They only account for it in terms of like if someone retweeted it or if someone responded to it. So that is absolutely a, a limitation of this because it doesn't capture the full range of engagement. Well, you can't do everything in one paper. So that's, <laughs> exactly. <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that'd be something to think about if someone wants to um, try to pull all of that together, like actually have the engagement rates next to, um, you know, the, the tweets um, mm -hmm. in a social network analysis. And maybe they could, you know, do the sociogram based upon uh, the engagement rates and things like that. Yeah. A again, conclusions always depend on what you choose as your metric. Exactly. Um, now I have a question going back to the information types mm -hmm. from our discussion on Twitter and reading what you shared, well, listening to what you shared today and then reading your paper. My understanding about your conclusion about the content was information posts that had a more personal nature. And this is, I understood that from the response you gave to me during a Twitter question. Um, information posts that had a more personal nature were more affecting, effective in building bridges. Now, we're always telling scientists that just sharing information isn't enough. And it seems like making the information more personal takes us one step further in creating connections with non-scientists. So uh, what do you think about that? For example, if there were two posts, both informational, but one made more, was made more personal, one wasn't. So how would you craft them differently? Can you give us an example? Sure, yeah. So say you want to share a message about um, a museum you just visited and it has some really cool paleontology collections. Um, that could be an information post. And you could write an information post that's like 
check out my blog about the cool museum. Or you could write, I just visited cool museum, which has been on my bucket list. Look at these incredible specimens. So excited. And so those are both coded as information, but one is to me clearly more personal because you're saying I visited this. This is something that was meaningful to me. Look what I did. And someone else can respond to that a little bit more effectively by saying like, oh my gosh, I went there and I saw this or so cool that you got your bucket list checked off or whatever it is versus sharing a blog, which might have the same kind of content. It might even start with like, I just visited X museum, which has been on my bucket list, but you're not giving someone enough personal information with just sharing a blog post to get them to engage with you. Mm -hmm. Very nice. I love this example. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. This is a really fascinating. Lisa, I have a different kind of question. So during the chat, as I was seeing some of the graphs, and I got a sense that the article was very technical. And sure, as I read it, there was a lot of methodology and terms, but it was written so well. And the abstract is so easy to grasp that I kind of paid attention to it. And even the way you explain it now is just very effective. Did you have any training in science communication or does everyone you work with just write this clearly? Because in my experience, it's actually not that well spread. (laughs) So I want to give a lot of credit to my PhD advisor, Kent Crippen. Um, He is on the study. And what's cool about the study as well is that we all have equal authorship. Um, I'll even look back at the paper and I'll be like, did I write that sentence? Did Kent write that sentence? Did Rich write that sentence? Like, who wrote this? Um, But we did so much collaborative writing in in Google Docs. Like, that's all we did. You know, we would write together. Um, So we were okay with writing garbage sentences and having someone else look at it and edit it. Or, you know, you would write something and say, is this good? And be like, no, let's edit it. So there was a lot of garbage. But then it came, we were able to collaborate and, and figure out how to make it better. I mean, this was not a first draft, obviously. It was, there was so much drafting that went into this. Um, so I really appreciate the comment that we are effective communicators because it was a lot of, um, there is a lot of effort that goes into it. Um, I'm not, I think just from all my experiences in collaboratively writing, with Kent and Rich, it just helps to make me a better writer and a better communicator. That that's a that's the point of a PhD training, isn't it? One of I agree. Points. Yeah, I am so grateful that I had such a awesome PhD experience because I had a really super mentor and I had a really awesome collaborative cohort of PhD students. And uh, yeah, it is the point of PhD, and unfortunately, not everybody gets to experience this. I had an amazing mentor myself. He's taught me how to be clear. Uh, but yeah, it's something I, I work with undergraduate students, and I often tell them that it's so much easier to critique than to create. So write something. You don't have to like it, and then we'll work from there. So this makes so much sense. Yeah, I think a lot of people are terrified of sharing their writing because we're oftentimes there's so much harder on ourselves and someone else's Mm -hmm. um but it's really great to have that external feedback even even if you're on the same paper like your your writing needs feedback i think 
that that's the way I live my life. <laughs> now, Lisa, during the chat, you mentioned some really nice work done on Instagram. They had analyzed the effectiveness of uh, messaging for paleontology. And I looked at the slide presentations that you shared, and it seemed like activities based on uh, post when you took a group picture uh, worked better. So if there were a bunch of people working for a museum and when they took a group picture of their activity, and these are activity posts, uh, they called it. Um, it seemed to work a lot better. And then they also looked at stories and they found from various different stickers between polls and asking questions and the slider, they found that the polls worked better. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this study? Yeah. Um, I first want to shout out the lead author of that study, uh, Sam Ocon. Um, she is a... Uh, undergrad at the University of Florida, and she was the one who spearheaded this project. Um, so she was our undergrad on the National Science Foundation funded fossil project. Um, mm -hmm. She, we had a social media team for this project, mm -hmm. which was incredible because I started on the project as a first year PhD, and it was me and the um, grant coordinator, like trying our best to muddle through paleo or excuse me muddle through like twitter and and um facebook and oftentimes they'd be like you're young you know how this works <laughs> which is always a lie <laughs> i mean i was i was decent at it but um anyway the the point of this is that by the end of the grant we had a really cool team that would meet weekly to figure out how we were crafting messages that met the needs of the community um so what i can tell you about the study is that they gathered Instagram posts that were created by the Fossil Project. And um, because of the thing I mentioned about Instagram earlier, that it's really hard to collect data from Instagram, um, they were looking a lot at the content of the image as well as the caption. And that was a lot of hand coding. You know, you couldn't put it into a spreadsheet. You had to look at each post individually, which took a lot of time. Um, but they used the same framework that we used in our scientific Twitter paper for um, analyzing the post types, um, but they broke it down into additional categories because I think that was one of the pieces for the scientific Twitter paper that in hindsight, if we could have broken up the information category ahead of time, it might've been interesting to see the different results um, because they had their, um, in Sam's study, they had the activity-based posts, which were subsumed into our definition of information posts. Um, and for Instagram, these sort of, like you said, these activity-based posts um, were highly engaged with. So they, all the posts, how, what, how did they do this? What was, so we know what universe of content you analyzed. What was the universe of content? Where's the source of the universe of content they analyzed? Was it just from one account and they tried different things or? Yes, that's, uh, yes, they tried it from, so it was all from the um, Instagram handle is at the fossil project. Mm -hmm. And so this was the the Instagram account created by the National Science Foundation funded fossil project that we all worked on. And so 
they would, they created the content and then looked at it all in a batch to see what kinds of engagement was happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Now I have a question. So uh, the marketing industry has been at this kind of thing that now the scientific community doing for a long time. And for myself, because I do both science and marketing, a lot of times what I apply to promoting my accounts or the social media we do for JC, I bring a lot of the concepts from marketing and apply it to what we do. Um, so basically, I'm learning from another discipline to apply here. And sometimes I feel like a lot of times in the scientific community, we're reinventing the wheel where some of this information is, uh, you know, at least it could form a basis of making some decisions or drawing back to conclusions and comparing it with a completely different audience, completely different discipline. Do you think the scientific psychom community is looking at uh, science communication would benefit from maybe paying attention to what's going on and learning from the marketing industry and maybe collaborating with them. Yeah, and that's a really good point that happened with the uh, fossil project. So mm-hmm. Sam was a undergraduate who uh, was majoring in geology, but Mary Jane was a marketing undergraduate major. Oh, cool. And so she brought forth all of these tools of marketing into the social media team because she knew how to create beautiful content. I mean, we were doing our best because we knew what Canva was and mm-hmm. we had had, you know, a brand strategy, but she took that and cranked it up to 11. Um, oh, nice. And so it was awesome to have her as part of the team because she was able to say, this is a neat graphic, but let's take some more, you know, marketing principles and think through how we can make it um, appropriate for an audience. Um, the other really cool part of the Fossil Project, like I said, we had a brand strategy. Um, we also had, we worked with um, a team called Atmosphere Apps, who was designing our website and um, an app that we had for paleontology. And they helped us to craft different messages for different audiences, essentially. So we had, yes, so we had, you know, different messages that, different key messages for scientists than we had for education and outreach people, than we had for a casual collector of fossils. Um, Because this, this, what this, what you just described, shouldn't be kept the best shouldn't be the best kept secret it's actually should be in my view Mm -hmm. uh, it should get like most uh more exposure because there's still this really negative sentiment about marketing lack of trust yeah uh, which stops people from learning from what's already out there and really stop reinventing the wheel and i think the stigma can be that um marketing can exist or you, you're only using marketing to you know make money and that's not what it is at all it's no. like marketing is so helpful for figuring out an audience which oftentimes with psychom you, you were right we are reinventing the wheel when it's mm-hmm. already being done in, exactly. in marketing communities 
yeah 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 anyway i'm i'm another <laughs> part of another reason that this conversation has been so fascinating in my view is what we just shared yeah yeah that's exactly. not often talked about yes and i i am so grateful for the opportunity to work on the fossil project because we did have all those resources at our disposal and as i think about becoming a professor since i'm only a postdoc right now i'm trying to write mm -hmm. grants but um as i get towards becoming a professor it's like okay who do i want on a team for grants obviously mm -hmm. i'm going to do education research i'm going to have science content people but i am absolutely going to write money into my grants so that there's um money for branding and for a marketing person and for mm -hmm. strategy like that Mm -hmm. Good. So that brings us to, it's a nice segue to uh, my, kind of my last question. What is next for you? What, what are you be going to be looking at next? That's a good question. Um, so one of the things that we've been thinking through is we had this um, study with paleontology Twitter, but it's, it would be curious to see what other science Twitter affiliated um, hashtags are doing. So because I'm curious if the kinds of messages that are shared by, you know, people who study ecology, or people who are ornithologists, or whatever scientific discipline you are on, you are in that uses Twitter, um, is the social network similar? Is the structure similar? Are the people similar? Are the types of messages that are shared similar? Because if so, that can give us a wider understanding of what's happening within the field, like a science generally. Um, but what would happen if it's different? What does that mean? Are people creating different messages and, and how, how does that compare? So that's, I think, um, on the horizon. And while I'm really happy that we wrote this super awesome paper, it is still in a scientific journal. So the next step is turning it into more of a practitioner article so that people who you know, don't necessarily read journal articles, have the practical advice that we, we gave in it. Lisa, where can people find you and get in touch with you if, if they want to do so? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at Lisa Lundgren 21. So it's my first name, L-I-S-A, and my last name, L-U-N-D-G-R-E-N, 21. Um, on Twitter, that's where I talk about my research and about science communication. I also have an Instagram account. It's at Dr. Lisanya. So it's like lasagna, except my first name. Um, and on that, I'm more, I guess, silly would be a better description. Um, it provides some insights into my brain, but research and science communication are not necessarily the point of my Instagram. Um, so you can, you can find me on there, but don't expect research and science communication. Um, some in-person events that I'm excited for are my uh, scientific conferences this spring, including the Association for Science Teacher Education in January, and uh, some science teacher conferences in March and in April. What are they? So the one in March is called NARST, and that used to stand for something, but now it's just <laughs> NARST. Um, it's essentially about research and science teaching. Uh -huh. um, and then the one in April is called the American Association of Educational Research. So you're interested in doing education research as well? Yes. So that is my main, that I got my PhD in science education. Um, so I really think about researching 
how different contexts are educational. So I don't, I do some research in schools. That's what my, P, uh, excuse me, that's what my postdoc is about right now. Mm -hmm. um, but I also do a lot of research into other contexts. Very cool. That's awesome. Awesome. Thank you very much, Lisa. Uh, just for the record, we're going to put links to Lisa's accounts and to her open access publication in PLOS One that we discussed in this episode uh, in the show notes. So you can go ahead and, and read uh, even more details there and get in touch with Lisa as well. Awesome. Thank you. Um, well, unfortunately, that's all the time uh, we had for today. Thanks a lot to my wonderful hosts, Sherry and Maria. Um, and uh, thanks to Lisa for, for co-authoring this amazing publication and for agreeing to discuss it in our Twitter chat. And here, we're looking forward, Lisa, to your future work. And we're definitely going to have you on again when, when you have uh, something new to share with the world. Sure. <laughs> Sherry, uh, this is going to be our last podcast for 2019. I can't believe this year is already almost finished. Uh, but since you're the mastermind behind the SciComm JC, tell us what's going to happen in 2020 with our team and our efforts. Yeah, it is actually indeed amazing that this year is already over and we've done so many fascinating podcast recordings and Twitter chats with so many amazing people. And I invite everyone to go back and listen to them. Um, and just like every year, we are we launch every year with our um, state your mission challenge, and basically we want scientists to start their science communication based on a mission statement. Um, we kind of like to nudge and force scientists to sit down and think strategically about how they want to go about communicating their science. So that's why we have this competition. And we're going to have prizes like every year. So look out for that. Yay. Yay. I'm so excited. <laughs> Same. Thanks a lot, everyone. And we stay in touch. Uh, also, don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter to receive updates for all our upcoming events, Twitter chats, podcast releases, and summaries of very interesting psychomy topics from our website. To do that, go to our website, www.psychomjc.org. And that's psychom with double m jc.org if you're interested in doing an internship you can also do that with our team we'll be more than happy to have passionate about science communication and research people help us out and join our efforts get in touch with us again via the website and we'll get together put our heads together and figure out what would be the best way for the team and for you to collaborate Psycom JC is sponsored by Captive Touch, a company offering consulting and training for strategic science communication. It is recorded by the Psycom JC team, produced and edited by me, Evena Kristalzova. Our music is composed by Musical Cocktail from Audio Jungle. If you liked it, let us know and please share it with your friends, family and your grandma. Till next time and stay nerdy.